Hello, I'm Grayson Brulte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. If you haven't already, please kindly take a moment to follow and be notified when a new episode is released. SAE Tomorrow Today is published every Thursday. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Carl Dietrich, co-founder, president, and chief designer, Jump Arrow, and Katerina Barvalov, co-founder, head of business development, Jump Arrow. Jump Arrow is a really interesting company with a really interesting concept. They're taking everyday individuals and making them superheroes. The tagline, everyday superheroes doing good by allowing EMT individuals to get to a site of an incident, a cardiovascular crash faster to save lives. It's a really impactful story that resonates with me because I have relatives that live in rural areas and perhaps it'll resonate with you and a relative that lives in a rural area, knowing that they can get the proper health care when they need it because of the technology that Jump Arrow is developing. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks. We're excited to have you here because you're developing an awesomely fascinating company. And I have to give you credit because you've got one of the most amazing best taglines of any company I've ever seen. That's from publicly traded companies, little companies, empowering superheroes. I repeat, empowering superheroes. <laughs> Will you please kindly talk about the, the tagline? Carl, we'll start with you and Katarina when, after Carl. Love your uh, thoughts on it as well, please. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, empowering superheroes really encompasses everything that Jump Arrow is about. Um, we are helping first responders, our heroes of today, take to the sky and literally fly in and land to save the day, very much like Superman, right? So we are truly building them an aircraft, giving them that power to fly in and, and get to the scene of the emergency faster. And in that way, we are empowering real life superheroes. This sounds like a Disney movie. I mean, this is awesome. You're gonna have a great fairy tale ending. Talk about it, please. That's the goal, yeah. You know, we really view the first responder community as kind of the backbone of the first response. And, um, you know, our desire to, to, to really empower them to be able to make a difference, uh, specifically in EMS, in disaster situations, is, is really what we're all about. We took a look at what we have in terms of the technology that's available to us today and kind of, you know, thought about, well, what's the best way for us to employ it? And um, I think Carl and I were both on the same team when we realized that we could do a lot of good by, by, by integrating ourselves with the, with the first responder community. Let's dive into that, Katarina. For a listener says, okay, superheroes are cool. First responder community, you're doing right by them. How would you describe to them what, what Jump Arrow is and what Jump Arrow is trying to accomplish? Sure. So, you know, when we think about EMS, when we think about emergency medical response, we think about ambulances and we think about, you know, kind of rapid delivery of what essentially is a rolling clinic where it, highly specialized people with highly specialized tools arrive as quickly as possible to the scene of an emergency. And what we're doing is assisting that system, I guess, to allow for additional life saving measures. Um, meaning that in a lot of um, time-critical emergencies, particularly when cardiovascular or oxygen depletion is involved, you do not need to have a rolling clinic. You really need to have a very small amount of tools and a specialized, specially trained person to be on site. And that specially trained person doesn't even need to be 
you know, very, you know, high in terms of their credentials and in terms of their training. It just needs to be somebody who's able to intervene. And that is really what we're doing. And that's really what our value add is. It's not to come in kind of with a full cavalry. It's to allow for the cavalry to already have someone on scene mitigating the situation by the time that they arrive. So Carl, putting another analogy, it seems military now, like special ops, you're sending in that individual that can, if it's, you can save two minutes, three minutes, that could end up saving that individual's life. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, that's absolutely it. And and Katerina really hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, in the United States today, there are about 350,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, and 90% of those are fatal. In-hospital cardiac arrests is less than 10% fatal. So we have, you know, a potential to, to move the needle by like 300,000 lives just in the United States simply by getting trained professionals to the scene just for that one case, cardiac arrest, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And that's to say nothing about stroke, uh, you know, allergic reactions, um, uh, drug overdoses, things that other time critical situations, severe trauma in a car crash, that sort of thing. So we see tremendous opportunity to save literally thousands of lives each year by just helping first responders get to the scene faster. And uh, that's where we think we can, we can really do some good for society. You're not only saving lives, Carl, you're saving families. You're allowing that family dynamic to continue, and, and that's really powerful so a, a child doesn't lose a, a mother or father because your technology allowed that first responder to get there. And then and we have Thanksgiving coming up. They can then, you know, Thanksgiving with their mother and father. That's a really powerful. Was that why you decided to found, to co-found the company where we're like, wait a second, we can do a lot of really good in society. We can have a, a positive impact, and here's a clear problem for us to fix. I have to admit, like I am a, a technologist. I came out of this from my previous company where I'd been trying to just kind of make personal flight more practical for everyone. And in 2019, I left that company because I felt like, boy, everybody's really infatuated with this idea of air taxis. And there are a lot of big barriers to, to making that a reality. And I started to think about what could we do that would be more immediate and have a much clearer positive impact on all of society where there's going to be less pushback let's say just just what 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 is out there what are the use cases that we could hit upon and and Kat and I really felt like boy this is it uh, you know empowering first responders with the the power of flight right with the power of electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft to get to the scene of an emergency as quickly as possible this is what I believe is the killer app, at least in terms of launch markets, for getting this type of new technology out there to do something good for society. So I was coming out of this more as like, hey, I'm a technology guy. I, I love airplanes. I want to try to find a way of making them more useful. And, and, that was, and, the, and then we hit upon this and we're like, yes, this is it. This is how we, how, how we make something that everyone can look at and say, yeah, that's a good thing. Right. And, and I love the fact that we're doing that. It's just, it, it makes my day. And Katerina, I want to point out, you're a pilot. <laughs> yes. And you have a plane and you fly and you also have a background in finance. So Carl's coming with the technology background. You're coming with the finance background and being a pilot. It seems like this, this wonderful partnership that's going to allow you to, to scale the company. Why did you guys want to get together to, to co-found the company? 
Well, for me, you know, I've always been fascinated with kind of the evolution of innovation in our sector. I joined aviation in 2011. I was working for um, an aircraft manufacturer called Hawker Beechcraft at the time. And, you know, it was a lot of guys in brown suits, you know, from the Midwest. And I, I'm from, you know, Berkeley and, and Silicon Valley. And I always felt like the industry had a lot of room for change and a lot of room for disruption. And, you know, in the past few years, we've seen that. We've seen new entrants. We've seen a lot of um, people come in and try new things. But I think, you know, when I met Carl... I felt like, okay, this is a person who not only has a great idea, but also understands a lot about how to make it happen and make it a reality, not just from a technical point of view, but also from a business point of view. And, and having that kind of sober, very realistic mindset is, you know, kind of, in my opinion, oftentimes be unique in our field and very valuable. So that really excited me because, you know, from somebody who comes from finance and from business, to be able to combine my passion for the industry and to be able to really make a difference and to drive innovation forward and to do it in a way that I can stand behind and say, okay, this is my personal reputation, this is my personal career, and I can put it all behind this particular idea, I think is a very unique opportunity um, that only comes once a lifetime. And so it's kind of a no-brainer. It's powerful. Then you have the, the Berkeley Silicon Valley background. Carl, you, you went to, in my opinion, one of the greatest institutions in the world at MIT. And so you've got this in, incredible fundamental understanding from MIT. So you, you take Katarina's incredible background and, and being a pilot and actually flying a plane, background in finance, your technical background from MIT, is that, did you guys sit down and say, wait a second, as Katarina said, I'm kind of bearish on the EV tall market. Is that when you kind of sat down together and say, here's all the things that the markets aren't working right. And hey, wait a second, Th this is like this little niche that we can go run. And, and I have this great saying, Katarina, you know, from your Wall Street days, there's riches and niches. Yes. Is that where you kind of <laughs> went down that route? That's a great saying. We should use that more often. Um, well, uh, to be honest with you, Carl convinced me. <laughs> so we didn't really come, to, come sit down and come up with it together. Carl already had the, the idea to, to use public uh, service as a, as a path forward to be able to overcome the barriers that the industry is seeing. And Carl, during your time at MIT, did you do research into this? Were you actively studying this or tapping into the vast resources of the MIT network from a technological standpoint? Not exactly. No, I was one of those kids that was fascinated with aviation from a very young age. I started saving up for my pilot's license when I was eight years old and worked as an assistant mechanic in high school and, and then went to MIT to kind of get good at airplane design. And then along the way, wound up going into like rocket engines and fusion propulsion, all sorts of crazy stuff. Spent 11 years at MIT. I love the place. And started getting sort of my first taste of doing entrepreneurial things. I founded a student group that is still going today there. And, uh, and then coming out of my PhD program, I founded a company called TerraFugia that was making a true flying car, uh, something that could drive on the road and fly in the air, and learned so much. I grew that company over the course of 13 years, uh, wound up selling it to the Zijang Jili Holding Group, the parent company of Volvo and Lotus Cars in 2017. And I stayed on for a couple of years afterwards, set up an R&D center for them. Um, and uh, But through that process, we spent a lot of time looking at both the technology and the business cases for air taxis, which is what most of the money is pouring into EV tall aircraft for today. And the air taxi business model, there is something there. I, I'm not saying that there's nothing there. It's just that there are some very significant obstacles to the world changing potential that I know that it has. 
And so as an entrepreneur, I'm always looking for, look, how can we have a bigger impact faster? And that's when this idea of well, what's going to mean the most to people and what's going to avoid the the nimbyism of like, I don't want these little things flying over my head and all this sort of stuff. Well, well, we put up with lights and sirens every day because we know that those guys are going to save somebody's life, right? We know that as a society, we want to have that ability. We want to support it, right? And I don't know anybody who says, no, I don't want paramedics getting to an emergency, right? Like it's, and so it's, it's an area where you're going to start with really broad-based public support, right? And then the question is, it's really important. One of the principles of medicine is do no harm, right? We've got to set up a system where we're not making anything worse, where there's no way that our system could be making anything worse. So we're making a purely additive system on top of what's already there today, right? Because there are going to be times when that's a new system, we may not be able to provide the service for whatever reason. The weather is bad. If it's really, really, if it's a snowstorm, you're not going to have guys flying out in a snowstorm, right? So these are the realities of flying that pilots are very familiar with, the limitations that, that go along with that. But first responders aren't necessarily familiar with all of those, right? So so we, we wanted to create a package where it's clear that we are doing something good. We're doing something that has the potential to be tremendously helpful. There are times when we may, may not be able to make it work. And that's something that is, is different about this service. And we want to be really upfront about that with, with the people that we're uh, purporting to serve. And I think that, that that approach of being upfront about where these technologies are really good and where they're not, where they're not going to be the universal cure-all and how we can form a better system that, that addresses the needs that are out there in a better way and integrates really well with, with the existing systems that we have out there. That's really the key. And I think Katerina has been really fantastic about jumping in with both feet. You know, since we had those early conversations, she's now gone out and become an EMT. She's part of her local search and rescue team out there. So she's getting the firsthand experience of, of really boots on the ground, what it's like. And, you know, while, while me and my team out here are, are building the aircraft. You bring up a lot of really great points of paramedics to the emergency. The one thing that, that I constantly hear, can they get here faster? That's a common thing. It's not like, oh, please take your time. It's like, no, you want to live in a community that has a very low response time. And then as we go through the natural aging process and seniors, they tech, want to live where there's good hospitals and doctors and ambulances be able to to get them when they need the services and your technology comes along and perhaps they want to live in a more rural community because one of the, uh, the individuals likes to farm and they want to have more land. And so you allow them the ability to you talk about like have the, the freedom of mobility, but they can have the freedom to farm or, or live the lifestyle that they choose. That's really powerful. Katarina. So you, you put this together and I love this. You, your EMT you said, okay, I'm going to roll my sleeves up and I'm, I'm going to learn this. I, I'm a pilot. And now you've got this finance background. So you understand the EV tall market. Carl's made a clear case for the business case. How, When you speak to an investor, how are they currently viewing the opportunity? Because you have the real world experience. You're actually rolling up your sleeves. It's not like, hi, it's a PowerPoint presentation. You're like, no, I'm actually doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that we've seen, you know, a surprisingly positive um, response for potential investors um, for an EV tool company. I think Carl and I both kind of came into this thinking that it was going to be a 
pretty tough road and a really like, steep hill to climb when it comes to fundraising, just because that's what it's like in our industry. It's a very capital intensive project with a lot of risks along the way that may potentially jeopardize the whole business. However, for us, we've gotten a lot of actual inbounds from investors because they see that not only do we have a different view of how to think about, you know, the technology that is a little bit more appropriate in our view and I think in their view for where the technology is in terms of maturity, but also we have a very realistic path to profitability in a much shorter time frame. So when you take a look at, you know, a typical venture capital fund and the time horizons that they have for returns, a lot of aviation projects don't become real in that time frame. And for us, since we are doing something that's a lot more realistic and a little bit more um, sensible in terms of the technology so we can get it out faster, we're able to become profitable and become a fast growing company that's, you know, very good valuations a lot quicker. And I think that is very attractive to investors and that's something that they can really wrap their minds around. With regards to my practical experience, you know, I think the best thing that that has done is to allow me to understand how the EMS system works, which in this country is not always the easiest thing to figure out. And in the past year, you know, and during the pandemic, while I was doing my, you know, EMT rating, I think it, we have the slide that Carl and I like to use, which looks like a spider web of all of the different, you know, people and kind of individuals that are responsible for decision making in the EMS world when it comes to the kind of technology that they use and the way that this technology is implemented. And understanding that spider web I think the only way that I could have done it is by being inside of it and really understanding, you know, how these people work and what are the things that they need. Um, I'll tell you an anecdote. One of the early conversations that I had was with one of the people who's now on our advisory board, who's a paramedic and who's a first responder for his entire life. And he was telling us about how he was at the Las Vegas shooting when it happened. And the thing that was the most traumatic was not seeing the injuries, but the lack of tourniquets. So not being able to apply, you know, enough tourniquets to save lives, that was the most traumatic thing for him. And to be able to have a vehicle where one person arrives with, you know, which is essentially a very light payload would have made a huge difference. And so, you know, something like that, I don't think I would have been able to know had I not been in that community and really understood the impact that our technology could make. What are the other issues that face first responders the incident in las vegas was a was a horrific incident but there's there's other issues that are not horrific like that or either naturally occurring or some you know other incident or or a car crash what are some of the issues that as as you being an emt rolling your sleeves up that first responders are facing on on a daily basis Right now, there's a big challenge with training folks up to the levels at which you are able to have a living salary. You know, EMTs get paid as much as a pizza delivery person does, and it's it's, it's very challenging. And so you don't, you see a lot of attrition, you know, kind of a lot of turnover with regards to, you know, EMT personnel and EMS personnel, and there's a real shortage of paramedics. And so there's a real concern with what's going to happen in the next few years with regards to availability of EMS services and particularly in rural areas, A, because there's a lack of trained personnel and B, because there's a challenge with funding. And there's always a challenge with funding. But, you know, there's a few bills in the Congress right now that are kind of aiming to 
help and alleviate a little bit of the challenges that, you know, first responders see, particularly with reimbursements for uh, being able to provide care on site. Right now, those are not reimbursed. Uh, The only reimbursement is just for transportation. So I think, you know, in the next few years, what we're going to see is a real shift in emergency medical response towards lighter and kind of like more efficient you know, ways to deliver care with maybe personnel that are not as highly trained as paramedics, just because it's really tough to find paramedics nowadays. Let's hope the politicians in D.C. can stop the nonsense. There's no reason why a paramedic shouldn't be paid a lot of money. They're saving lives and and the life is invaluable. That's one of the things that I love about our business model is, frankly, financially, it makes sense because we're providing with one person, we're providing more value to society as a whole, and we're able to capture that. And then we can afford to pay the first responder a better wage, which should make it a more appealing profession to go into, et cetera, et cetera. So it could have a virtuous cycle of kind of reversing these trends that we're seeing in the industry. So I'm really excited about that, that potential uh, that this has. And, and to, to just also jump on another point that Katerina made, you know, in the rural United States today, the average 911 first response time is 14 and a half minutes, right? If you have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and you don't get oxygen to your brain for 12 minutes, you're dead, right? So on average, you're dead in the rural U.S. unless you have somebody there who can do CPR, right? And and who can help get oxygen to your brain. So this is such a tremendous opportunity for us to, to take a technology from a completely different realm, from aviation, and have a really positive impact over in this other world that, frankly, I knew absolutely nothing about until we started exploring this. And the more we got into it, the more we thought, wow, this is amazing. We're going to be able to literally save thousands of lives with this. We, we have to do this. And it, it just became this, like, this is what we must do sort of situation. What you're describing is a no-brainer. You have to do it. You're doing good by society. You're allowing you know, individuals to live in, in rural areas. And for your aircraft, will it be a one passenger? The EMT will will ride in the aircraft and get to the scene, or will it take? Will your aircraft design have multiple EMTs to to go to a, a site? So no. We, so um, frankly, uh, there are helicopters today that are used as air ambulances, um, but those helicopters take three to five minutes to spool up, and they can carry a full complement of people and stuff like that. That's why we don't use helicopters today to do this mission is that it takes a long time for the helicopter to spool up, uh, for the crew to get assembled, all this sort of thing. And time really is a a premium. So part of what we're doing is we're creating a one-person operation, right? Well, it's it's not a one-person operation. It's a one-person aircraft that flies to the scene that's supported by another person on the ground. But it's not, we're not transporting patients, right? Because that would put you in a different category of operations. Uh, We are simply getting... The EMT, who is also a pilot, right, getting them to the scene. And the level of pilot that they need to be is actually the lowest level of pilot to do this mission. That's one of the appealing things about it, right, is that, uh, and we're also making an aircraft that's very, very simple to learn how to fly and, and to fly safely and quickly. So that's, that's part of the, the technology requirements that, that we take on in making this, this product. But it, it's all driven by the needs of the first responder. As a parent, if I was to go to school for, you know, you read a book or, you know, what does your parent do day? Uh, 
I'm an EMT and a pilot. Now that oh, that's cool. No, 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 like okay, you're, you're the cool. You're the cool parent on campus. You get defined as you're the superhero now, right? Yes. <laughs> you are and that Superman. Goes right back to your tagline. Exactly. Of empowering superheroes. So you're 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 empower empowering you know, every, everyday heroes to be superheroes to their children, their children's friends, and then their their children are very happy and they're very happy and they're doing good by society, and so it's a complete win. All, all around when, when you look at the aircraft design and i've been doing a lot of research and reading around certification because as, as katrina mentioned she's very uh, bearish on the evtol it's not cheap it's extremely complex some of these documents i've read carl what are your thoughts on the certification process so i've been involved with uh working with the fan industry for i guess more than decade now uh, with the standards committees that are writing the standards that will be used as whatever we call means of compliance to to the regulations. So we have a clear path forward for how we're going to certify the aircraft. Part of why it's important that it is a one-place vehicle is that that puts us in a different certification category than like air taxis, which might have four or five people in it. That's a, Those are level two cert projects, What you know, the, the denomination doesn't really matter, but we're a, we're a level one certification project. So it's it's a little bit easier. There are, there are um, just changes in the, the technical details of, of some of the requirements. Uh, that helps keep the scope in check. The other aspects that are really uh, positive about taking this approach is that there are avenues to use the aircraft by government agencies. So for instance, the Air Force or local governments, tribal governments could use the aircraft, frankly, whenever they want, at, at, you know, once the, we get the technology sufficiently mature. That, that's called a public use aircraft operation. And we're talking with some organizations that already have that, that approval, uh, that public use aircraft operation approval from the FAA. So. There are avenues uh, that that could allow our product to get to market much faster than other eVTOL products out there today or that are in development today. One of the big challenges is that nobody has a certified eVTOL aircraft out there right now. And, and we are aware of sort of where the, the bleeding edge of what, what, what things they're you know, hitting their shins on today. And that, that does give us some confidence in our approach that our timing is good in terms of, you know, by the time our program is sufficiently mature, that we are really entering into the, the, the details of a CERT project, we will know exactly what we have to do at that point. You know, we, we, right now, there are still some things where we're talking as an industry with the FAA about what sort of maneuvers are you going to fly during your certification flight test program, right? All these sorts of things. Like nobody's ever done this kind of certified, this kind of aircraft before. So it's, it's a process and the FAA is learning along with industry about how to, how to do this. So it's a, it's a very interesting process. And, um, you know, we're, we're certainly in the middle of it. You mentioned tribal lands and I've been very fortunate to a lot of things in my life. And the thing I did earlier in my life, my grandfather took me all around the West and got to see a lot of things. And one of the things was Prairie Ridge, the largest Indian reservation in the United States and in South Dakota. And it and, and the things that I was, saw there and experienced there, your service could save and help so many of these Indians that, ne- that need the help because they go over the border and 
they they drink and it's called fire water and it's not good doesn't agree with their body and it's it's really sad but yet to get there it's it's a 40 mile from from one area of the reservation to the other when you go through the faa process since prairie ridge is tribal lands do you have to can you get an exemption or is it how does all that work if you're operating on tribal lands where you're trying to to, to help the reservation so the FAA has jurisdiction over all of the airspace. So it, 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 the land is different. So the, land, the people who control the land control whether you can take off and land on you know, their land. But the FAA has total jurisdiction over the air part of it. And that's that, from a jurisdiction perspective, that's really important. So we would have to work with the local tribe to confirm that, we, that it's okay to take off and land you know, on their lands and things of that nature. But from an FAA perspective, it's very cut and dry. It's, it, you know, we, we have sectional charts that show us where restricted areas are, where airports are, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and we abide by the, the federal aviation regulations in our operations. So um, it's very, from the, from the a flight of the aircraft perspective, it's very straightforward from the where can I take off and land? That depends on who controls the land. Katarina, as a, as a pilot, do you have to file um, a flight plan where if the first responder is going to get in there and say, okay, we have to go to spot A, do you have to file a flight plan and go through all that stuff? Or can you, the EMT pilot get in there and, and go save a life instantly? You do not, is the short answer. Um, in the United States, we're very lucky to have very relaxed rules when it comes to personal air transport. So for a private pilot, you do not have to notify anybody. You do not have to file any flight plans. The only thing that you need to do is notify uh, controlled airspace that you are going to be transitioning through it if you happen to be flying through controlled airspace. Um, but one of the things that you know we are planning around is the deployment of our technology around controlled airspace specifically so that they would the people who would be piloting it would not have to go through it. So yeah, no, you do not. <laughs> um, whenever I fly, I do not. A lot of airplanes... Um, that are older, don't even have radios. So you can fly an airplane in the United States without notifying anybody of anything or talking to anybody. You'll be able to get there faster and you're you're developing an electric aircraft. What are the benefits to an electric aircraft? I'm gonna go the car analogy. When you're in an electric car, you can take off a lot faster. Is that very similar to an aircraft where you can take off faster because you don't have to get the engine all warmed up or if you have an old prop, you have to go there and like in the movies and, and turn the, the, the prop to get it to go? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there, there are two big advantages. So one is that it, it is a green technology, right? So we can recharge the batteries with solar power, or renewable energy, that sort of thing. So that's, that's a nice selling point when it comes to deploying new technologies. It's nice to be able to say that, that the environmental impact is low. But the big advantage for this use case of going all electric is that we can instantly go to full power, right? Whereas... If you have a thermal engine, like an internal combustion engine or a turbine or something like that, and you instantly go to full power with a cold engine block, you know, you're going to induce all sorts of thermal stresses that will cause the engine to wear down faster, basically. And, and you will pay for that in terms of operating costs in the long run, right? So it affects the economics. It's not that you can't ever do it. It's that it's not a good practice to do it all the time. And what we're talking about is something that you need to do, you know, every day. You're going to be going out and saving somebody's life. So if with an all-electric aircraft, that's a non-issue. We can instantly go to full torque, full power right from the ground. And that gives us a very rapid deployment ability. It means that we have to think about, as you know, Katarina's a pilot. So like she knows like when you fly a normal airplane, 
you go out and there's a very kind of extensive warm-up procedure. You do an engine run-up, you check a bunch of things, all this sort of thing. With an electric aircraft, we can automate a lot of that and make it happen just much faster without skipping any steps uh, where you're still checking all the systems before you take off. But we can do it just much, much faster with a full fly-by-wire electric aircraft. And so part of what we're doing in addition to developing the airplane is developing the safe and rapid deployment process and retrieval process for, for the aircraft. And that's, that's part of the, the system design on how you make the whole system work from an economics perspective. Katarina, is that where your experience as a pilot comes in when you speak to the team and say, okay, well, this works for a traditional pilot and this is what we can do better with software and automation? Oh, I think they know. They know more than I do. <laughs> um, my, my, you know, I think my experience is really just to, in, in bridging the gap between the EMT world and the, and the aviation world and being able to talk to EMTs what the aviation world is like and being able to talk with the aviation world what the world of first response is like. Hey, Katarina, when you meet with the, the EMT community, you're getting feedback on the ground. Are there certain markets that are popping up and saying, okay, like I mentioned Prairie Ridge, South Dakota, I'm assuming your technology will be used in Wyoming, Montana, large, vast areas of the West. Are there certain markets that are popping up where say it's a 100 miles to a hospital, 200 miles to a hospital, 50 miles to a hospital? Are there certain trends like that that you've seen like, wait a second, this would be a really great market to deploy our technologists the way that geography is and where the hospitals and the medical centers are? Absolutely. We've done we've done extensive research in specific key markets within the United States, um, namely states that are very rural, um, which have a high population of folks over 65, but yet have a lack of access to rapid EMS care. And within those states, there are specific areas that are kind of like blackout areas when it comes to EMS response. The way that EMS is organized in our country is by county. And some counties, you know, have a higher, harder time delivering care than others. Um, in fact, some counties in rural California, if you go on their website, have a link to sign up to a subscription to a helicopter medevac. And that's just because they don't really have rapid ambulances and they don't have any hospitals nearby. And so we've done extensive research, you know, where those locations are, the impact that our technology can make in those specific locations. And then outside of that, you know, large private communities, whether that is a, that is a, a corporation which has like offshore, you know, kind of locations, um, which right now cannot be accessed for, for with EMS or private gated communities, which have a high population of folks over 65. A lot of times they employ their own EMS services and transportation services, which comes out of HOA fees. And those are really prime markets. And then outside of that, I think large scale events in very remote, you know, locations. There's a big race that happens, folks running from Las Vegas to Barstow. Um, and as you can imagine, supporting that with EMS services right now is, is, is a big challenge logistically. So those are just kind of some some things that come to mind. Of course, there's there's a lot more applications than that. In between Vegas and Barstow, there's there's a lot, a lot of sand. Yes. And mountains and not <laughs> a lot Joshua of EMS trees. services. Yeah, oh, no. Joshua trees are gorgeous, but, but not a lot yeah. of EMS or, or or support networks. And then when you you get into Death Valley, you've got the famous thermometer there. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly right. Yes. So you know, you you think about kind of private EMS providers, you know, that are functioning alongside 
public institutions and the impact that we can have working within all of the different agencies that currently deliver EMS and, you know, the different creative ways that we can integrate with the community, I think we can make a really big impact. When you integrate with the community, how are you going to build trust with the community? Are you going to have demonstration days or Q&A days or how are you going to develop trust with those communities? I think that the, you know, paramedic EMS uh, market and, 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 and I guess community really is all about seeing it first and really understanding the risks. And if you don't show it to me, then it's vaporware. And so we've been working really hard on developing close relationships with specific counties which are working alongside us as we grow and seeing what we're doing and vetting us, you know, based on the promises that we make and then seeing the results that we are delivering just through the R&D process. And we are hoping that we, through this process, are going to form big partnerships with not only counties and, and public services, but also private EMS providers within the ambulance community, um, within the hospital community, to you know, be able to show that through a launch product that we are able to save lives. And so right now we're in the process of speaking with a number of those kind of entities to establish what that kind of launch will look like um, and what kind of, I guess, extent we will be integrating with those partners. And so I guess that's all still up in the books, so to speak, um, in, the, in the drafting stage since our technology is, is uh, still developing. And so as we, as we develop it and as we continue to prove that we are on track, I think that that's how they, that's how they uh, see that we're not, we're not just uh, making stuff up for, for cool articles. <laughs> the most important thing that you and Carl are doing as a company, you're giving the local community a seat at the table. You're not just coming in and parachuting in like a like a sky like a trooper and saying here we are. You say no, we're going to give you a seat at the table. We're going to go to the diner with you, and we're going to have a hamburger and a milkshake, and and we're going to build trust with you. And, th- and that's really important. A lot of companies need to take more of that tack because it's the most important way to do it. And Katarina, we we've covered a lot of ground, and th- and there's one big question I, I'm dying to ask. What is the future of aviation? Because you've got this great experience as a pilot and you're working on, on electric. What is the future oh of aviation? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> that's a, I don't know if uh, maybe Carl is more qualified to answer this. I think, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about the bright future with Carl for the past few days. And the bright future that we labeled in our slide was rapid, sustainable, automated personal transportation, I believe, was was all the bullet points that we got in there. And I, and I think that's the that's the true, you know, future of aviation. I think Carl, you know, brought up in our conversations the Star Trek teleportation machine, you know, and the closest we can get to that, that's the dream. And I think that's where we're headed. At least that's that's the way that we think about ourselves is, is, is for you to be able to teleport wherever you need to go with a push of a button. Yeah, no, I think Kat explained it really well like that that is the you know that what is the only thing that would be better than like superman flying in well if you could snap your fingers and and you know star trek transport right to the scene like instantly right we can't do that so for the time being we're limited to flying so we're trying to just make that work and and approximate that vision of the transporter to the extent that we can with today's technology and and I think, uh, you know, Kat hit on all the, the key points, right? It, it, so it's got to be fast. It's got to be 
basically on demand. Uh, you need to be able to go instantly, you know, like getting in your car, uh, that sort of thing, right? Not waiting in line to board an airplane, right? It's got to be sustainable, right? And, and, and you need to not have to be a pilot, right? That's the other piece of this. So right now, right now, as I mentioned, we are requiring our, our paramet or our EMTs to learn how to fly an airplane. And that's because the regulatory roadmap for how to make an autonomous aircraft certified is completely unclear. And I'm very involved with those conversations. And frankly, the FAA is kicking the can down the road from uh, on that because it's, it's very uncertain. You know, there, there's a lot of unknowns and when they're when there's uncertainty, the FAA doesn't like that, right? Uh, we're, the FAA is very used to working with what we call deterministic systems, and autonomy is not deterministic, uh, at least not in, uh, not in the visions of the future that, that are um, sold today, I guess. Uh, so that, that step is a very important step. We are positioned really well to take that step when it makes sense to invest in that step. Uh, and that's part of our long-term plan is we make a platform that that is fully capable of delivering a life-saving service immediately. And then that platform can be expanded upon uh, down the road. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we need to to get out there and start saving lives as quickly as we can. And we don't want to put anything unnecessary in the way of doing that. Autonomy is the future. I mean, we get all a lot of the Star Trek. They're gonna innovations are coming reality. Captain Kirk, William Shatner, recently went up in a Blue Origin <laughs> spacecraft into space, and Captain Kirk went there, and we're gonna go there one day. So these innovations are gonna happen. Somebody's gonna figure out teleportation one day. It might not be in our lifetime, but I'll tell you one thing: the society will continue to innovate and innovate and innovate like you're doing. And Carl, if a, if a listener says, "Okay, this is really cool. I'm interested in Jump Arrow. I want to learn more." Where can they go to learn more about Jump Arrow? Yeah, so we're hiring. So please, you know, submit an application on our website or just send an email to jobs at jumparrow.com. Um, you know, we're, we're really interested in, uh, in talking to mechanical engineers, uh, designers, that sort of thing. Um, any people who can help us grow our organization um, a, as quickly and responsibly as possible. Um, so... We're be very excited to uh, to engage with uh, your listeners and and hopefully add some of them to our team. That's jumparrow.com, J-U-M-P-A-E-R-O.com. Go there, uh, learn about the future in everyday superheroes. And Katerina, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, we covered a lot of ground, we learned a lot of really cool things. What would you like our listeners to take away with them? And then Carl, after Katerina, I'd love your thoughts as well. I guess that even though you might read some things on the paper that seem like science fiction when they talk about EV tolls, the future is more realistic than you think. <laughs> and that um, it is possible and it is coming. The question is how it's going to be done and who's going to do it. Something tells me you're on your way to doing something special. We're doing what we can. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, please. So my, my whole life has been involved in trying to make personal aviation more practical and, and good for something. And I, I am just genuinely really thrilled to have the opportunity to work on something that can, can make a positive impact at almost any scale, right? Like even one of these aircraft out there going out there and saving lives, hey, you're saving lives that wouldn't have been saved 
before, right? Like so, and it's and it's hugely scalable beyond that. But but I love that idea of, gosh, just 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 start getting these things out there and 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 start showing people the possibility what's what's achievable with this new kind of technology and you know turning that vision into into reality and for me that that's just doesn't get any better than that the f- the future is going to be built by individuals like yourself and and Katarina and innovation's always going to continue because today is tomorrow tomorrow is today and the future is everyday superheroes Carl, Katarina, thank you so much for coming on SAE tomorrow today. Really enjoyed this. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to SAE tomorrow today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week when we sit down with Robert Brown, Chief Strategy Officer, and Tyler Rather, Co-Founder and Chief Technology Officer, Spartan Radar. Robert and Tyler join us to discuss Spartan's advancements in 4D radar. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.